Welcome to the Biome Podcast. As you probably already know, my name is Graham and I am the host of the podcast. Firstly, I want to thank the new members that have signed up for the Biome membership. Your contributions will be put towards saving the survivors Rhino Rescue. These amazing people help rescue rhinos that have been left for dead after being poached. Most rhinos are killed but a few are found and able to be saved. These rhinos are obviously invaluable for the life that they are, as well as the genetic material that they hold and are rehabilitated so that their genetic material isn't lost and they can still help save their species while hopefully living the life a rhino should. We're launching our first giveaway in the membership section this month as well. On the 25th, we will announce the winner of one of our hoodies. While the winner will get the hoodie for free, a donation will also be made to Saving the Survivors Rhino Rescue as though they had purchased the hoodies themselves. So, if you want a chance to win one, make sure you sign up for a membership. It's the cost of a coffee per month and you get some great perks like giveaways, obviously, the ability to get involved in the recording of the podcast, and more. So check out the website for more details. There is... Also, the guest article section. The first article should be up hopefully soon. As with any guest article section, we're always looking for other writers. So if someone you know wants to write an article, head on over to the site and get in contact with our editors. We would love to read their or your work. The hope is that it will become a place to read interesting articles from the world of zoology and ecology. They can spark great discussions and the team will consider anything from opinion pieces to analyses of journal articles, even just articles about how you are helping the environment in some way or a retelling of some adventure that you went on. Just we'd, we'd love to read all of them. So basically anything you want to consider, just get in contact with our team of editors. Now, with that said, let's dive into the lives of the Norwegian rats. The animal spotlight section is a section where we dive into the uh, lives of an animal and explore it inside and out. Today, as mentioned, we're looking at the Norwegian rats. Now, Norwegian rats are believed to originally come from Asia, but they have been introduced to many parts of the world through human trade and travel. They're found in almost every country and can live in a variety of environments, including forests, grasslands, deserts, and even urban areas. They are particularly common in cities and other areas of human habitation where they live in close proximity to people and can find food and shelter easily. They're also found in rural areas where they can live in fields, barns and outbuildings. They are known to be excellent swimmers and can survive in areas near water as well. The Norwegian rat, also known as Rattus norvegicus, also known as the brown rat or common rat, is a species of rodent that is found throughout the world, as mentioned. They're typically between 16 and 24 centimeters in length, or about 5.5 to 9.5 inches. Then the tail is usually just shorter than that, but over and above that. 
they usually weigh between 150 to 500 grams or about 17 ounces they have a stocky body and blunt snouts small ears and a long scaly tail the fur is typically gray or brown in color and they have surprisingly poor eyesight but they do have a keen sense of smell and hearing they're able to hear into the ultrasound range which is how a number of deterrents work to discourage rats from settling in certain areas so if you go to the store and buy a deterrent generally speaking well if you go with a non-lethal one it's either a cage trap of some kind or it'll be a um, ultrasound noisemaker Norwegian rats are opportunistic omnivores, meaning they will eat a wide variety of foods depending on what is available. They're known to eat a variety of plant-based foods such as grains, fruits, and even vegetables. They also eat insects, worms, and other small animals as well as fish and crustaceans. They're known to consume human food, including meat, dairy products, and processed foods. And they're also known to scavenge food, which can include garbage, carrion, and even refuse. Well, I guess other refuse. Norwegian rats have a high metabolism and need to eat frequently to maintain their energy levels. Their heart rate ranges from about 300 to 400 beats per minute, and they take about 100 breaths per minute. They typically eat several small meals throughout the day, rather than just one or two large meals. Rats are known to be territorial animals, and they will often establish a home range where they can forage for food. They'll often return to the same areas to forage for food, and they are known to cache or store their food for later use. Now, in terms of drinking habits, and no, I don't mean alcohol, in terms of drinking habits, rats are known, are able to get pretty much most of their water from the food that they consume but they will also drink water if it is available. The social structure of Norwegian rats is actually quite complex. Individuals form both temporary and permanent social bonds. They're known to live in large colonies with a clear hierarchy and dominance structure. The colony is led by dominant alphas that work to keep social cohesion and will actually break up fights within the colony. Now, Norwegian rats are known to be territorial, as I mentioned, and they will defend against other rats. Within the home range, there may be several smaller territories, each controlled by a different rat or a different group of rats. Rats are known to be highly social animals and they communicate with each other through a variety of vocalizations and physical gestures. They use vocalizations to signal distress, aggression, submission, and they will even use it to locate one another. They also use physical gestures such as grooming and touch to establish social bonds and to communicate with each other. In terms of behavior though, Norwegian rats are known to be very active at night. They're also most active during the hours of dusk and dawn. They are also known to be excellent climbers and they can climb walls, trees and other vertical surfaces to escape preda uh, predators or predation or to reach food. I saw a video recently of a rat that was um, that had climbed a fence. Unfortunately, um, it had, didn't do too well, but it did climb the fence. 
um, and it was using its uh, paws to open the fence, which is quite impressive. Now, let's talk about their reproduction. Female Norwegian rats become sexually mature about three to five months of age. Males are a bit later at about five to seven months of age. They are known to breed year round and the females can produce litters of up to 12 pups every three to four weeks, which is why um, rats are so prolific and why they are found basically everywhere. Interestingly though, research has shown that females prefer to mate with strange males rather than males that they have mated with before. Research has also shown that the females prefer to mate, um, they prefer not to mate with males who have experienced stress during their adolescent years, or more likely weeks rather, since, I mean, they're only seven, five to seven months of age. But researchers aren't aware of how the females can actually tell which males went through stress, but somehow they can sense it and it affects their breeding choices. The pups are born blind and hairless and are dependent on their mother for milk. They will open their eyes around two weeks of age and are weaned at around three to four weeks of age. The lifespan of a Norwegian rat in the wild is typically around one to two years, although some individuals may live a little longer. Generally speaking, with proper care, the Norwegian rat can live to about two to three years in captivity. Factors that can affect the Norwegian rat include, especially in the wild, include disease, predation, and other certain environmental conditions, such as obviously temperature. Now, in captivity, the rats are less likely to be exposed to diseases and predators and have access to food and water, which can lead to the slightly longer lifespans. The Norwegian rat is a highly successful species due to several adaptations that have allowed it to thrive in a wide variety or wide range of environments. One of the most important adaptations is its ability to adapt to a wide range of diets, which we've spoken about previously. They are opportunistic feeders and will eat a massive variety of food, including the fruits, vegetables, grains, and meats that we spoke about. This adapt adaptability I don't know why I struggled with that word for a second there, but this adaptability allows them to survive in many different environments, specifically the urban and suburban environments, um, where they can have access to the garbage and other refuse, as well as rural areas where they'll have access to um, grain and um, possibly even vegetables. Another ad adaptation that contributes to the success of the Norwegian rat is the ability to produce rapidly. As mentioned, female rats can give birth to litters of up to 12 pups every three to four weeks. Now, Norwegian rats are also highly mobile. They're excellent climbers and swimmers, and this allows them to escape from predators and to find food and shelter. They can live in burrows, sewers, and other underground spaces, as well as trees and above ground locations. The Norwegian rat's ability to live in close proximity to humans is probably one of its best adaptations um, and probably the one that has contributed to its success. They've become accustomed to human pre pres presence and they can thrive in urban and suburban areas. 
One of the benefits of thriving in a urban or suburban areas where there's lots of people around is that generally there's less predators. You're not going to get a coyote or a fox um, as often in those urban or suburban environments as you would out in the wild, well, out in rural areas. One of the main competitors to the Norwegian rat is the black rat, or ratus ratus. Appearance is one of the most notable differences. However, the black rat and the, um, the black rat is smaller in size and with a slender body, and the tail itself is longer than its head and body combined, whereas the Norwegian rat is larger in size, is heavy and robust, and it has a shorter tail. The habitat of each species is also different. The black rats are an arboreal species, meaning it's often found in trees and buildings near trees. The species is well adapted to climbing and um, on the other hand, the Norwegian rat is a terrestrial species, often found in burrows and underground habitats. Now the Norwegian rat, as mentioned earlier, will climb and is a very good climber. But generally speaking, it's not found in um, higher spaces it's, it's, or arboreal spaces. Generally speaking, it is found um, terrestrial places, so on the ground or under the ground even. Now, the diet of both species is omnivorous, meaning they eat a variety of foods. Um, however, the black rat is more likely to eat fruits and insects, while the Norwegian rat is more likely to eat grains, meats, and surprisingly, even garbage. The Norwegian rat, however, outcompetes the black rat in a number of areas, just because it's more comfortable living underground, but also it's larger and more aggressive than the black rat. So, in summary, the Norwegian rat's ability to adapt to a wide variety of diets, its rapid reproduction rate, its mobility, and its ability to live in close proximity to humans are some of the adaptations that have made it such a successful species. These adaptations have allowed the Norwegian rat to thrive in a wide variety of environments and have made it one of the most widespread and common rodent species in the world. I think we're going to call it there. We'll touch on um, the disease that the rats can carry just because it's it's a dark, dark era in human history. Um, but yeah, we'll touch on the disease at another point, possibly even in the field notes. For now, though, let's call the uh, let's call the animal spotlight section there, and let's move on to the technical section. I'll see you there. Welcome to the technical section. Now, the technical section is a section in the podcast where we look at some theory or concept within the world of zoology or ecology to um, help learn about the particular species, preferably learn about the particular species that we just um, studied or spoke about in the animal section or the animal spotlight section. This one, however, isn't necessarily related to the Norwegian rat, but bear with me and I'll see if I can try and circle around to it. But today we're going to look at natural selection. 
we might even touch on artificial selection, but let's look at natural selection. To start with natural selection, we have to look at genetic mutations. Now, genetic mutations are changes or alterations in the DNA sequence of an organism's genes. They can be caused by a, a variety of factors, such as errors in the DNA replication, exposure to environmental factors, such as radiation or chemicals, or they can occur spontaneously when a um, when your DNA is read by specific proteins. Now, mutations can affect single base pairs of DNA molecules. I'll make sure that we talk more about um, the structure of DNA molecules in the field notes section. But basically, a DNA molecule is shaped like a stepladder, and each rung is made up of two specific proteins. Now, those specific proteins are called base pairs. So mutations can affect single base pairs, in which case it's a single rung, or a larger section of DNA, in which case it's a number of base pairs. And they can result in a variety of outcomes. Some mutations have no effect, some lead to beneficial adaptations, while others can cause genetic or, uh, disorders or increase the risk of certain diseases. Mutations can affect the structure or function of proteins coded for by the gene, leading to changes in the expression or a trait or a characteristic. Some mutations can also result in the loss or gain of genetic information, which can lead to changes in an organism's phenotype, or basically how it looks or how it expresses itself in the natural world. So for example, I, I have um, gray eyes and that is one phenotype, whereas someone else might have green eyes, different phenotype, or brown eyes. Um, you can you can go with skin color. You could go with height is a specific phenotype. Um, so phenotype is basically how the gene expresses itself to the outside world. Now, sure, those can be affected by um, environmental factors, but uh, not always. And we're looking at specifically the um, genetic portion when we talk about phenotype. Now, these mutations are what fuels natural selection. Natural selection is a process by which species evolve over time in response to changes in their environment. It is considered one of the most important mechanisms of evolution and is responsible for shaping the diversity of life that we see today. Now, the process of natural selection begins with variations in the characteristics of individual um, within a population. These variations can arise from genetic mutations, sexual reproduction, or other sources. Some of these variations may provide an advantage in survival and reproduction, while others may not, specifically making them more prone to diseases or um, causing genetic disorders. Now, individuals with advantageous variations are more likely to survive and therefore reproduce, passing on their advantageous traits to their offspring. Over time, these advantageous traits become more common within the population, while the disadvantageous um, traits become less common. This gradual accumulation of advantageous traits is what drives the process of natural selection. One of the key concepts of natural selection is that it's driven by the environment. For example, in a population of birds, individuals with longer beaks may be better adapted to reaching food in difficult-to-reach places. 
these birds will likely um, will be more likely to survive because they can actually eat and reproduce, passing on their advantageous beak length to their offspring. Over time, the population of birds will generally um, gain longer beaks on average. Now, another important aspect of natural selection is that it's non-directional. This means that it does not necessarily guarantee that a species will become better or worse over time. Instead, natural selection simply results in the survival of the individuals best adapted to their current environment. So the process may lead to the evolution of a species in a particular direction, but it may also lead to the extinction of a species if it becomes unable to adapt to changing environmental conditions. Natural selection is a powerful process and it shapes the evolution of species over time. By understanding how natural selection works, we can gain a deeper appreciation of the incredible diversity of life on our planet. Now, let's actually touch on artificial selection so that we can compare the two. Artificial selection, on the other hand, is a process by which humans intentionally select certain traits or characteristics in plants or animals and breed them to produce offspring with those traits. Now, unlike natural selection, which is driven by the environment and occurs naturally, artificial selection is directed by humans who actively choose which traits they want to pass on to future generations. The process of artificial selection has been used for thousands of years to breed plants and animals for specific purposes. For example, farmers may breed plants that produce larger and sweeter fruits, or animals that are faster, stronger, or even more docile. Over time though, through selective breeding or artificial um, selection, the desirable traits become more common in the population, while the undesirable traits obviously become less common. One of the key benefits of artificial selection is that it can be used to produce crops and livestock that are more productive and better adapted to specific environments. For example, crops that are bred for drought tolerance or resistance to pests can help to increase yields and reduce loss. While livestock that are bred for disease resistance can produce the need or can reduce the need rather for veterinary care. However, there are also some potential drawbacks to artificial selection. One of the biggest concerns is that over-reliance on selective breeding can lead to inbreeding, which can reduce the genetic diversity of a population and increase the risk of genetic disorders and diseases. Another concern is that artificial selection may result in the loss of important traits that were not selected for, such as resistance to environmental stresses or the ability to adapt to changing conditions. Artificial selection in dog lineages has also caused a number of health issues in certain breeds. This is because through selective breeding, dogs with specific physical traits have been favored for their appearance or utility without considering their health or well-being. One of the most common examples with dogs is that of hip dysplasia, a hereditary condition that affects the hip joints of dogs. It occurs when the hip joint does not develop properly and therefore leads to arthritis and discomfort in the dog. This condition is more prevalent in breeds that have been selectively bred for certain physical characteristics such as larger sizes or a specific body shape without considering the dog's overall health and mobility. Similarly, 
Breathing issues in bulldogs is a common health concern, largely due to the physical appearance, which has been shaped through selective breeding. Bulldogs have been selectively bred for a short snout, wide head, and a thick neck, which has led to a narrow nasal passage and increased risk of breathing problems. This can make it difficult for bulldogs to regulate their body temperature and can cause numerous health problems, including overheating and even respiratory distress when the bulldog can't get enough oxygen. In addition to these specific health issues, selective breeding can also lead to a loss of genetic diversity, which makes breeds more susceptible to other health problems and diseases. This can occur because in order to maintain a specific physical trait of the breed, breeders often rely on a small number of closely related individuals for breeding, which therefore obviously reduces genetic diversity. It's important to remember that artificial selection has had a significant impact on health and well-being for many dog breeds. It is also important to consider the health implications of selective breeding when choosing a pet. Before bringing a new pet into your home, it's a good idea to research the breed and understand the health and behavioral, behavioral characteristics, as well as to seek advice from a veterinarian or a breed specialist. Now, artificial selection is a process by which humans use selective breeding to produce animals and plants with specific traits. There is no doubt that throughout history, it has had some amazing benefits to humanity. However, it's like any tool, it has also had some detriments to certain pets. Now, some of the um, amazing benefits include increased productivity as well as the development in, of new and improved varieties. There are, it's also important to consider the potential drawbacks and use the process responsibly in order to avoid negative impacts on the genetic diversity and health of the population being bred. I think we're going to end the technical section there, but do let me know what you think of artificial selection as well as natural selection. Which one do you think is better? Which one do you think is worse? Certain animals have gone extinct due to natural selection, whereas um, certain animals have both seem to have their drawbacks, both seem to have their benefits. Which one do you prefer? With that being said, let's call it quits on the technical section. Well, I think we'll end this episode there. If you want more wildlife content, be sure to check out our website at thebiomepodcast.com and consider becoming a member. The majority of all profits go towards Saving the Survivors Rhino Rescue. Feel free to check them out at savingthesurvivors.org. There will also be a lot more content and community of like-minded zoology enthusiasts as well as giveaways, photos and contests and expert Q&As. So be sure to check out the membership section. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well and get a free copy of our Birdwatcher's log, a printable form to log all your bird sightings and easy to put into a binder. I use it myself, especially when I saw um, a pair of juvenile bald eagles last week, which was quite, uh, quite a sight for me. And I was able to get some decent pictures, which you can see on, um, on the membership section. So I use this 
birdwatches log myself and I thoroughly am very happy with it. It's, uh, it's even got a place to attach a picture or draw one in depending on your preference. Newsletters go out about once a month and contain highlights and surprises if we are lucky enough to have them. Also, if you or anyone you know enjoys writing, be sure to consider writing a post for the guest writer section. We may get you to be on the podcast even, so have a look at the site and read the tips on writing a compelling article, as well as how you can get in touch with our editors. A lot of new things this season, so be sure to stick around and follow us on social media at the biome, sorry, at biome.media rather. That is at biome.media. And don't forget, we love hearing from you, so keep in touch. For now though, we'll be back two weeks with episode uh, four, I guess. If you want to hear the podcast before it's released to the public, sign up for that membership and you can comment and listen while it's being recorded. We might even get into a bit of a debate, which is always a lot of fun. Until next time though, remember to always ask questions. It's the foundation of science after all.